This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Meth, agitated delirium. I was about 15 years old and uh, my friend offered me some methamphetamines. And she's like, do you want to do a line or two or we'll split this bag? And I'm like, sure. And uh, what I remember is when I did those drugs, I could drink a lot more alcohol and I felt good and I felt like I had no worries and it was like the best feeling that I ever experienced. So it was super good. I couldn't wait to do that again. Um, And so when you're a kid at that age, you just do what you can get your hands on, basically. And so anytime I had an opportunity, I wanted to do methamphetamines. You know, you wake up, you get loaded. And then a week's gone by or a year's gone by and you can't believe it went by so quickly. That's how methamphetamine works on people. And then when my disease progressed from what it start, where it started, I was like, five minutes was too long not to get loaded for me. Um, and so I just constantly had to put something in my body because my body physically had to have it. It progressed to where I couldn't function without it. You know, if I did fall asleep, which wasn't often, I would have to have it to stay awake, to go to sleep, just to live on a day-to-day basis. So what happened was, you know, I hooked up with a guy that was my good friend and he was my drug dealer and um, he taught me how to sell drugs and I was committing crimes that comes with the lifestyle in my life. And, uh, you know, because of that, I I I got arrested two counties. I was going to Sacramento and Yellow County on a regular basis to jail. And uh, what happened is eventually I ended up in prison. The thing is, is that I had more time to think. So when I came out, I called my son's father and I called my mother and my mother was super mad at me. hadn't seen me for a long time and she came and picked me up and she took me to my first meeting of uh, Narcotics Anonymous in South Sacramento. And I was afraid and scared and wasn't sure what my future looked like. That was Claire. And wow, that is a very different story from my personal 15-year-old experience. It's hard to imagine being only 15 and needing methamphetamines to live on a day-to-day basis. I know, it's heartbreaking, right? And yet, Sarah, you see the Claire's of the world who struggle with methamphetamine use disorder, what, like every shift? Yeah, I mean, there's hardly a shift that goes by when I don't have a patient who is somehow affected by meth. We've mentioned SAMHSA before, the Substance Use and Mental Health Services Administration. Well, SAMHSA's Drug Abuse Warning Network found in 2020 that methamphetamines were the most common type of substance involved in substance use-related ED visits, even over alcohol and marijuana. So clearly, this is an ED issue. Sarah, that seriously blows my mind. I have to say, I was a little surprised, even though I live in California. Were you surprised at all? Yeah, I mean... Not surprised that meth is so prevalent, but over alcohol? (laughs) I know, right? That's just crazy. But this is the inspiration for this podcast. 
You know, after we published The Game Has Changed in March of 2018 on opiate use disorder, I was actually pulled aside by one of our social workers in the emergency department. And she said, Julia, you know, this is obviously an important topic, but methamphetamines is a much, much bigger deal for our community. And I don't hear anyone talking about it, at least not in the same way that we talk about opiates. So ever since that hallway discussion, I have been thinking about this podcast and I've wanted to do a podcast on methamphetamine use. So this discussion is a refresh on what meth is, why it impacts our patients, and what we can do about it. Oh, yes. And stay tuned at the end to hear the conclusion of Claire's story. You won't want to miss that. It's true. I love that story. Sarah, I spoke with Dr. Kelly Owen, an associate professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and a toxicologist who is the associate director of the Sacramento Division of the California Poison Control Center, and with Dr. Dan Colby, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and is a toxicologist as well as an addiction medicine specialist. They are going to walk us through it all. Kelly, will you start off just kind of walking us through the basics for those who are not familiar? What is methamphetamine and how does it impact our patients? Methamphetamine is an amphetamine derivative that people use as a stimulant. It works in the brain to release neurotransmitters that make us feel good and have more energy. And it also can block receptors to make the neurotransmitters last longer, so you feel good for a long period of time. There are multiple ways to get high on methamphetamines. Often people will smoke it. Sometimes people will inject it. You can snort it, and you can orally ingest it even. Those are much widely uh, less used ways to get exposure. Dan, how does it impact our patients? Why is this a problem for us in the emergency department? In many ways, I, I tell our, our students and residents that methamphetamines, uh, at least in California and Sacramento, are the biggest impact we actually have on our patients, uh, the biggest thing affecting our, our approach to care because uh, it's so prevalent. Uh, in many ways, it's much bigger than the opioid epidemic, at least for us locally. It causes patients to have acutely something called an agitated delirium, which we see every single day in our emergency department, multiple patients coming in intoxicated with methamphetamines. They can be mildly upset to all the way to hugely agitated, harming themselves or other people. Um, they might come in under law enforcement custody. They might come in by an ambulance. They might walk in. We often have to give them uh, sedating medications. Uh, sometimes we add antipsychotics to that because they might be overtly psychotic. And then there are all these other downstream effects, damage to their organs, to their brain, which can be temporary permanent, damage to their heart, which can be temporary permanent. If they use intravenously or intramuscularly by injecting it, they can have lots of infections either in their bloodstream or locally with abscesses and and, uh, local infections like cellulitis. All these downstream ramifications which affect their health just by using it the one time or if they use it routinely. Kelly, talk to us a little bit about how it impacts their social life and the way that they interact in society. I think it's important to differentiate Like, there are people that can have a one-time use or occasional use who are holding down jobs and are in society, kind of, you would never know the difference. There are also people who are using enough that they do have 
dependence and addiction behaviors that then lead them to take risky behaviors to get the drug. They may impact them financially as they're spending more and more money to be able to get more drug and then can lead to then losing jobs and loss of income. And then it kind of can spiral. And that's part of the addiction dependence part of drug use that can happen with a lot of drugs. But methamphetamine tends to last in the system for a while. And because of all the things clinically that can happen with the agitated delirium and the side effects from it, it can just lead to a lot more problems with their life and in society. Dan, methamphetamines is physically addicting. Is that correct? Incredibly addictive. Some people uh, argue it's the most addictive drug that we have. People have used it just a few times and been met that threshold for that term addiction that we use, that type of habit forming. Some people can use it intermittently and not be fully addicted. Some people just one or two times find it to be addictive. Whoa, that's scary one or two times. That is a really low threshold to become addicted to something. Talk to us a little bit about who's at risk for starting off using methamphetamines. You know, at this point, some estimates say that over a million people in our country are using methamphetamines routinely or regularly. So it, at this point, it's everyone. Um, we see young people as uh, young as 12 using methamphetamine, and we see geriatric patients using methamphetamines. Um, I had a patient who was 81 the other day who still uses methamphetamines. Um, so at this point, it's, it's pretty much everyone. When you're younger, you're more likely to have long-term addiction if you start at a younger age. So that's uh, an especially vulnerable population. But uh, technically at this point, it's, it's everyone in our society. And um, while we see certain socioeconomic markers for it, and there's stigma that's associated with all of this as well. People who are more often poor seem to use substances in general more, and especially methamphetamines. But we have um, wealthy executives using methamphetamines in our region. And, and of course, we also simultaneously have a lot of people who are unhoused and living in homeless shelters using methamphetamine. Now, you talked about it being a derivative before, Kelly, of amphetamines, which we can use in medicine, right? We use this for ADHD and ADD. And I know some people can take those medications and use them inappropriately when they don't have ADHD or ADD. Is that like a gateway drug? Does that lead to methamphetamine use? What's the relationship between those two? I think it's more clear that if someone's obtaining the pills for recreational use, you can consider it more of a gateway drug in that respect because then they're more likely to use methamphetamines down the line. But if you're just being prescribed amphetamines, by your provider, then there isn't as strong of a correlation of it being a quote-unquote gateway drug to later use. So yeah, if you're a college student who's buying it from your friend, then that's more concerning. And one other subtlety is we have a huge population of people in our region who are using methamphetamines. You know, it's tough to call it recreational because um, they're not even using it for the, necessarily the euphoria. Um, they're using it to work three jobs and, and not have to sleep. And they're using it because they feel they have no other choice and society has given them this tool. It's not dissimilar historically to how different nations have given amphetamines to their soldiers to have them march through the night. There's a huge amount of people who are using it for the euphoria. There's some people who started out using it purely just for energy, and then many of them often become addicted to it still because it's so habit-forming and addictive. Even if you don't want to be using it for the euphoria, you end up almost not having a choice. You mentioned that this is a significant problem in our region. This has a gotten the attention that heroin has and that opiates have. Why is there a difference in what has caught the minds of the world and the media? 
That's a great question. I think it's complicated. I think um, there's some issues with socioeconomic status involved in there and different groups of people who happen to be using this drug versus that drug and what our media pays attention to. There's less cases of people using methamphetamines a single time and being found dead. So there's less of these horror stories, these horrific events, versus methamphetamine is something that more likely to kill you solely over time. And so that's definitely part of it as well. And then the next piece, I think, for Kelly and I as, as physicians and, and people who are toxicologists and addiction specialists, we also don't have a magic antidote for methamphetamines in the same way. I think of benzodiazepines as kind of this temporary antidote if someone comes in with an agitated delirium, but it doesn't suddenly save their life the way naloxone Narcan does. And then we don't have kind of the magic pill that we have in, in buprenorphine and suboxone to treat them long-term. We're looking for it. There's different therapies that have come out. And the existence of those therapies has allowed us to change the minds of people in the world of the opioid epidemic because we can do something about it and we don't have as much to do uh, that's evidence-based, unfortunately, for methamphetamines at this point in time. I think there's also a lot of stigma around drug use and abuse, and methamphetamine has been one of those ones that's more stigmatized against. And I think with the opiate epidemic, the media was kind of given the villain and the pharmaceutical companies, which then allowed some destigmatization. Now it's not the drug that's bad, it's not the individual patient that's bad, and it has that high mortality rate. Now we can address it and treat it because we're not looking at the individual people. It's, oh, that bad pharmaceutical company, I think made things easier. Whereas we aren't as good and we haven't quite got to the point of destigmatizing methamphetamine in that same way. Absolutely. And then uh, even to go on that further, you know, that the show Breaking Bad showed us this kind of group of villains behind the scenes, but they're these kind of like secretive group of people illicitly making methamphetamines. We don't see them in the media every day uh, to know who to blame for this. And and even with the medicine, but obviously in society, we all talk about addiction as a disease, um, but we don't think of it that way. We don't practice that way. Unfortunately, many, many times we want to, we say we should, uh, but it doesn't actually happen the same way. We know what methamphetamine does to the body, but even then there's a stigmatization that we all have to reflect on when we see people, yeah, walking on the street with a certain appearance and we say, oh, that person uses methamphetamines. There's this stigmatization that's occurring just in that. Our own implicit biases take hold. And uh, it's very interesting, even as physicians who treat these patients regularly, I have to, I don't know, almost check my own biases in, in those scenarios. I like to think about it like an addiction problem is the same as someone that has high blood pressure. They have a medical condition and we need to give them something or try to help them to treat their medical condition. So if I wouldn't drive down the street and look at someone and be like, oh, that person has diabetes or hypertension, I try to make myself stop that characterization of that person of, oh, they use meth from their external appearance. And I talk to patients about this too, because we see people come in with their sugars out of control. We see people come in with high blood pressure because they haven't taken their meds. And we're like, oh, they have a problem. We need to treat it. But somehow that same mentality doesn't always come through with addiction. And so I keep trying to retrain my brain and talk to people like, this is a medical problem. Let's address it the same way you would address any other medical problem and figure out how we can help people. And I think framing it in that way helps both providers and patients. Giving them that framework keeps the door open to them to be able to come in for help as well. Okay, so let's talk about that initial presentation. You're working in the emergency department. Patient comes in. How would they present with methamphetamine intoxication? 
So someone coming in with acute methamphetamine intoxication uh, can present in various ways, but very commonly the kind of classic is they would have a sympathomimetic toxidrome or stimulant toxidrome uh, where they could come in, present to us with a delirium. They'd be confused, perhaps, agitated and upset, perhaps, as well. Um, they might have dilated pupils. They might be diaphoretic, really sweaty. They probably will have an elevated heart rate, elevated blood pressure. And they might be hyperthermic. They might be hot, like have a fever, but uh, not from an infection due to the drug itself. But then paired with that, even after that initial phase, they might have an acute psychosis about we think 30% of people who use methamphetamines, when they use methamphetamines, they might have an acute psychosis and present, other than that toxidrome piece with those physical exam findings, they might remind us or be very similar to someone who has schizophrenia, and they might have auditory hallucinations, certain uh, thought process difficulties and abnormalities, very much similar to schizophrenia. And then the next subset, maybe 30% of those patients might actually have chronic psychosis. So that's one of the big issues here in Sacramento and California is with all our patients with mental health disorders and, and disease, including schizophrenia, it's sometimes very hard to discern or delineate between who has methamphetamine-induced psychosis, who has classic schizophrenia, who has a acute methamphetamine-induced psychosis or a chronic, and just doing a drug test for amphetamines or methamphetamines is not enough to figure out and discern, and oftentimes only in hindsight do we realize who has which problem. Yeah, so how do you differentiate between those two? Are there any other clues we can look at? In the world of psychiatry, they talk about kind of positive and negative findings of psychosis. Um, so it seems like people with methamphetamine-induced psychosis have more of the positive findings, the hallucinations, uh, certain of those findings versus people with classic schizophrenia have more of the negative uh, findings like the anhedonia, the inability to be happy, um, being, being more withdrawn. But even then, in each individual patient, it's really hard to figure out. And then what makes it even more complicated is we have patients who have all three of those issues. They have an acute and chronic methamphetamine-induced psychosis, and they have underlying schizophrenia. And all these things can present when someone is, for instance, 22 years old, which is, you know, the kind of the age range of when someone might develop schizophrenia. And it's really hard, at least in the emergency department, to figure out today, what do we do? It's incredibly cumbersome on our health system. It's really tough for patients. Patients don't always get the best care because of it. And it's something, again, oftentimes abstinence from using the drug, treatment for your other mental health and medical problems, and time and treatment. Only then hindsight do we realize, oh, you actually just had methamphetamine-induced psychosis, not overt schizophrenia. Oftentimes in the moment in the, in the emergency department, uh, Dr. Owen and I are unable to make that discernment. And I don't know that it matters that much that we figure it out right there in the moment, because really, if someone has some pathomimetic toxicity, if someone's really agitated, we want to use benzos to try to help calm them down. In someone that has some pathomimetic toxicity, I do try to avoid antipsychotics. But if they're not tachycardic, hypertensive, diaphoretic, then a little benzo, a little antipsychotic can do wonders, regardless of the cause of their psychosis. What about differentiating between cocaine? How do you differentiate between those two? The urine drug screen can help differentiate what they're doing. Not that we care about that that much. They can initially present the same with sympathomimetic toxicity. Methamphetamine seems to last longer, and they often are more agitated. Cocaine, because it has a shorter half-life, often they'll come in, they may be a little agitated, but often they're sleepy pretty quickly, and then they'll just be out and asleep for a while. Cocaine 
initially seems to present with more like cardiac ischemia, um, tears in your blood vessels, those kind of things, bleeding in the brain than methamphetamine does. One of the things we haven't touched on yet is kind of methamphetamine can present with acute heart failure as its initial presentation. So I think big picture from an emergency department standpoint is it doesn't matter if they look like they're sympathomimetic, give them benzos. And then we can kind of tease out specifics later, but you're not going to really treat it that much differently. What about kids? How do they present when they've accidentally ingested methamphetamines? Children, it can be especially sad. We've had situations where they've ingested methamphetamines from their family members or family friends. And they can be really sad because it can just be like extreme toxicity in the same way uh, for any drug, the dose makes the poison. It'd be like they have a huge overdose. So they can have all those sympathomimetic findings, and we've had some bad outcomes when they've been so tachycardic, so hypertensive, and they get really hyperthermic, they get that high temperature. And one thing we do know about methamphetamines, there's actually a lot we don't know about it, but one thing we do know about methamphetamines is that mortality rate, so death rate for methamphetamines, correlates with temperature. So the hotter someone's body gets, the more likely they are to die, and we've had some quite toxic, hyperthermic pediatric cases that have been very sad. We've been able to support most of them uh, so they survive, but we had some bad outcomes as well. Um, and what do we do in those situations? We often do cooling measures. We give not only benzodiazepines, but then we'll literally put ice packs in the axle and the groin. We'll do evaporative cooling with wet towels and, and fans. Some people do ice baths where they'll actually place patients in a bath of ice water uh, because we know that the hotter they get, the more likely they are to die. And that's especially true of children. I've seen this several times, many times over the years, actually, and it often shows up in those kids that are just starting to pick up stuff and put it in their own mouths. So nine months to, you know, two, three years of age. And most of the time it's been accidental in my experience. Certainly just having drugs around kids in general is child endangerment and is not okay. But most of the time it's not something that's purposefully given to a child. One time I saw they were storing their meth in the formula bottle. And so that was an unfortunate place. And somebody else made a bottle for the kid with the meth that was inside of there. And I always have it for me on my differential in a fussy young child that is fussy out of proportion. And I can't find a good reason. The fever <laughs> that you talked about is always the one that makes it sometimes a little bit more challenging because, you know, fussy and fever is usually a virus and not usually methamphetamine. So you kind of have to broaden your differential when they're tachycardic out of proportion to that fever or they're tachycardic out of proportion to the fussiness. Then I think about it in those moments. All right, let's talk about treatment. If you have identified somebody who comes in intoxicated on methamphetamines, you guys have mentioned benzos several times. Kelly, you said you would not use antipsychotics. Why is that and what do you use normally? I will use any benzodiazepine, <laughs> any. <laughs> There's never too many benzos, right? Versed has a very quick onset. And if I don't have an IV, then giving IM Versed is often where I will start. Valium, I like because it self-tapers and has a longer half-life. But sometimes in the acutely sympathomimetic patient, that's not necessarily what you need. You need that quick on to kind of settle everything down. Ativan is a good drug as well. It can stack a little bit so that you get some delayed respiratory depression. And so with multiple doses of that, I just kind of keep my eyes out for that. 
But whatever you have and however you can get it in in an acutely sympathomimetic patient is fine. I do tend to avoid antipsychotics just because benzos are quote-unquote clean drugs, meaning they hit one receptor, versus antipsychotics, which tend to act on multiple places in the brain. And when I'm trying to combat pharmacology from one drug with another drug, I'd like to do it with the drug that acts at least amount of places that I need as possible. And so antipsychotics, because they can kind of work everywhere, are not necessarily what I reach to first line. The one other reason is that antipsychotics can mess with your temperature regulation and cause you to become hyperthermic and elevate your temperature. And so since we just talked about elevated temperature, increasing mortality, having that confounding is something I would like to avoid. There's a very commonly used treatment combo of diphenhydramine, Benadryl, antipsychotics like Haldol, and benzodiazepines like Ativan. The, the kind of crude term that people use in emergency medicine around the country is a B-52 the Benadryl, the five of Haldol, and two of Ativan, all in a combo together to sedate agitated patients. Um, I think both Dr. Owen and I would advocate for not using that combination, especially the diphenhydramine part. Um, it might just lead to further delirium and definitely can lead to worsened hyperthermia. So we would advocate for everyone to remove the diphenhydramine, the Benadryl portion of your treatment of these patients, especially when they're undifferentiated. If you want to use it once a patient is clearly having a, a mental health crisis only, but in our department at the beginning, the first few hours of treatment, we don't know. It's undifferentiated at that point. So we would recommend not using diphenhydramine. For me, I've had enough people have a little bit of acesthesias or um, some side effects from their antipsychotic as well. And it tends to be why I give Benadryl with an antipsychotic. So if I've filled their benzo bucket and need something else. I'm okay with the antipsychotic with the Benadryl, but I just avoid both of those early on until I know what I'm dealing with because they can cause more harm than good. The medications are incredibly important because oftentimes patients end up in restraints if they're harming themselves or other people. We don't like to do that if we, if we don't have to, but sometimes we need to. Again, if we give the dosing of benzodiazepines that we need to to make sure the patient is fully relaxed, then maybe we don't need to put them in restraints. So some of these things are symbiotic with making sure we did what we call filling someone's benzo bucket. Everyone needs a different dosing of benzodiazepines depending on both how much methamphetamines they used and then also their body, their own tolerance. And it can be large amounts for some people and very small amounts for other people. So those are kind of some of the things we talk about being supportive care uh, in toxicology, when we say supportive care, we usually mean monitoring benzodiazepines, intravenous fluids, and then whatever uh, temperature regulation we need to do uh, to make sure they're safe. There is a point where we change our tune a little and we reconsider antipsychotics after we've given multiple doses of benzodiazepines. We think to ourselves, maybe we filled the proverbial benzo bucket, but we've done our best in that regard. There's a point where we consider adding antipsychotics. And that's usually the point where for an agitated patient, I'm saying I might add some antipsychotics and simultaneously I might be prepared to intubate the patient for their safety or for the safety of our staff. If they're having an extreme agitated delirium that seems to be somewhat resistant to benzodiazepines, that's for me my threshold of when I'll add antipsychotics. I think it's also important to put out there that if their temperature is rising despite all of this supportive care, 
then we are paralyzing them and putting a breathing tube in to stop them from moving because just their amount of agitation and motor activity can help elevate their temperature. And so in order to give them the best chance of having their temperature come down um, and be able to give them enough sedation safely, uh, we will put the breathing tube in and, and paralyze them. Okay, so that is the acute issues. What about the chronic, the long-term, the dependency? How can we help our patients that are experiencing an independency upon methamphetamines? As we mentioned before, there's, there's not that magic pill that we have for opioid use disorder, for methamphetamine use disorder. So there's kind of multimodal approach. People are studying various medications. People are studying bupropion as one medication. Now, Trexone is gaining some evidence when it's used for alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder, interrupts the reward pathway, the dopamine reward pathway in the brain. So there's different emerging medications that have varying evidence, um, definitely treating underlying depression or anxiety, very much evidence-based. Different therapy approaches um, have been shown to be effective. Um, and then one, one thing called contingency management is gaining more traction, where patients will repeatedly come to clinic as outpatients and if they screen negative for methamphetamines, they will get some sort of reward. And that seems to be able to override some of the reward pathway. So maybe they'll get money or they'll get some other sort of incentive. So contingency management is becoming more and more prevalent in the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder. That is super interesting to use those same reward pathways as a incentive for that. What about for those of us in the emergency department, if we have a patient who methamphetamine is impacting their lives, what can we do on a shift for them long-term? So for patients who present using methamphetamines chronically, definitely identifying mental health issues that they're having, get them plugged in with psychiatry and mental health treatment, that can be a huge part of this. And we also have, at least at UC Davis and many emergency departments around California, substance use navigators. So our substance use navigators are amazing, and they get patients plugged in with outpatient treatment centers. Um, there's lots of places doing treatment of methamphetamines. Again, it's not with one pill. It's with multimodal approach. But places doing group therapy, doing contingency management, getting them on certain medications, which might help, approaching it from kind of all angles. They don't have to necessarily be inpatient. It can be outpatient clinics as well. Some place, patients need to go to rehab. Other patients do not. Um, resources are a big part of it. Living situation is a big part of this. But we have resources in our city, in our state, in our country for this to varying degrees. And our substance navigators know all of them and know how to get patients plugged in. That's a great plug for having a substance abuse navigator in your emergency department because that just makes that whole plug-in so much easier. What is your take, guys, on harm reduction, giving them clean needles, giving them supplies to be able to continue methamphetamine use, but in a safer way? What's your take on that? We have those resources. We have packs of clean needles for patients that you can hand them. We don't think to do it as often with methamphetamines, but we probably should because they're at the same risk of developing skin or blood infections, developing uh, HIV, hep C, all types of infectious diseases from sharing needles. So we probably shouldn't think of it more. And that's a great point. I, I probably should do it more myself. We think of it more where they're opioid use disorder patients. But um, if you identify a patient who uses methamphetamines, I often ask them, how do you use? Um, because it changes their risk factor for certain things. Maybe I'm more likely to offer them 
um, HIV screening in that situation. Maybe I'm going to do a better skin exam in that situation than I would if they smoke methamphetamine. So um, in the same way, if I identify that, I probably should consider offering them clean needles and, and uh, also referring them to a needle exchange. The needle exchange uh, programs we have in Sacramento will give needles to anyone, not just opioid use patients, so they'll give them to methamphetamine patients as well. Any last pro tips that you guys have for us on approaching our patients who are impacted by methamphetamines? And I would say also, like, substance use disorder and mental health issues are not protective for other medical conditions. And sometimes when people present to our emergency department with one of these, everything gets put on that, and we forget that they can have all the other things that anyone else can have, and they're probably more at risk for other illnesses. Look them over, see what's going on medically. Don't blame everything on the substance use or the mental health issue. Try to treat our patients with some grace, realizing that if they have addiction, it's not a choice. We all answer that in the multiple choice tests. On our boards for emergency medicine or pretty much all the other fields of medicine, that addiction is not a choice and these patients have a disease. Yet for some reason, very often, I think medicine in this country treats patients as if they have a a moral failing. Um, And that I think is especially true of our methamphetamine use patients. So try to give them grace. I talk to my patients about giving themselves some grace and and not be so hard on themselves, um, that they have a disease. I talk to their family members about it as well, because we've seen numerous situations where patients are trying to get help, trying to get treatment, try to do better. um, And they do better for a while, and then they start using again, and their family um, really abandons them in that situation. And those are the exact patients that we need to support even more because those are the patients that are more likely to be able to to get treatment for the disease and get better. So I think actually um, walking the walk, not just talking the talk in medicine, would be great if we did that more often. Those are super wise words. We should treat our patients with grace. It is that type of grace that gave Claire a second chance at a new life. Claire, what does it mean to you to be clean? How's that it changed your life? I can have a life. Someone gave me, you know, an opportunity to give me a job and a place to live and being grateful that I have a place to sleep that's safe, that I don't have to go out there to hustle and bustle to stay loaded like I used to, to do things and hang out with people that I don't want to and do the things I don't want to do. You know, uh, I get to be present for My son, he's going to turn 28 years old. So I've been able to be present for him and myself. I've been able to go on vacations. I just bought a brand new home. Those are just things that never would have happened before for me if I was out there. I wouldn't be living the way I live and the opportunities I've been afforded through the company that I work for. I had to prove myself my whole time, you know, being clean and sober. It means a lot to me to be clean. I'm very proud of it. Pulse check. Meth sucks. You know this if you work in an ED, particularly in an urban ED on the West Coast. Methamphetamines cause a sympathomimetic response, dilated pupils, tachycardia, hyperthermia, and agitated delirium. Oh, the agitated delirium. This is best treated with benzos. Fill your patient's benzo bucket until they can rest while the methamphetamines wear off. Unfortunately, methamphetamines can also cause long-term psychosis, which can be difficult to differentiate from organic psychosis. Hyperthermia is dangerous in these patients. We should monitor temperature closely 
bring it down, and if you need to, intubate and paralyze. These patients struggle with one of the most addictive drugs in the world. One time can lead to addiction. We need to be careful not to let our own biases cloud how we treat these patients. Treat the issue like you would any other medical problem, with grace and resources. And remember, one of the most valuable assets is a substance use navigator who can help get our patients the resources they need in those crucial windows of opportunity that we encounter in the ED. This was a really fascinating discussion on how stimulant use, specifically meth, impacts the ED and our patients. Soon, we are going to hear from our substance use navigators and a patient on how we can approach our patients who struggle with addiction. In the meantime, share your thoughts with us on social media at Impulse Podcast. And if you appreciate this discussion, like us on iTunes and tell your colleagues about the podcast. This helps us out a lot. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for working with us late into the night, stimulant-free. And thank you to our department for striving to better care for our patients with substance use disorder. See y'all next time.